We are returning to 1 Corinthians this fall. We are preaching verse by verse through it. We started it last year. We took a break during the summer to look at the Psalms as we do every summer. And now we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to speak just for a minute, so you're welcome to take a seat if you would like. 1 Corinthians was a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a city that was just southwest of a four-mile-wide isthmus that connected northern Greece from southern Greece. If you're going to get to northern Greece, you had to go through Corinth, and so it was this incredibly bustling city of trade of all sorts. Outside of the city of Corinth, there was a 1,900-foot uh, hill, and on that was the temple of Aphrodite, where a, a thousand temple prostitutes would come into the city to help men uh, worship. It was a place where the Roman world called uh, sexual fornication to Corinthianize because of the rampant uh, sexual immorality in the city. It was like taking New York and LA and Las Vegas and pulling them all together. It was a growing city that had been destroyed and it was being rebuilt because of the economic location in which it found itself. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is in Corinth. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 18. He stayed there for a year and a half, and he met some very key people in his journey, like Priscilla and Aquila, who were Jews that flooded into cities like Corinth because the emperor kicked all the Jews out of Rome several years before. And so they flooded south into the Greek islands. And so today we come back to 1 Corinthians. And in this text, <laughs> in this text, you're going to hear about a cultural trend that was drawing people's affections and attention away from Christ. And it was placing the attention on men and women who were participating in the worship service in a way that was contentious, scandalous, disruptive, and causing problems for gathered worship of Christ's people. So with that in mind, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll read verse 2 down through verse 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies her, uh, with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have the symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. 
judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair was given to her for a covering. And if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Weekly Podcast. We're glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. All right, who wants to come and preach this text? Listen, we, we take the Bible seriously. We worship Jesus. We take his inerrant word seriously. And so we preach all the way through it, even those texts that are tough to preach. This is one of them. It was a normal morning for Roger Willits, at least since his wife died. He had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and dementia shortly after his death. And his daughter began to notice that her dad was, was forgetting things and was putting things in weird places, like the time she came over to his house and found his wristwatch in the refrigerator. One Sunday morning, Roger goes through his normal routine combs his hair, he buttons his shirt, he puts on his tie, and he throws on his jacket, a jacket he wore almost every Sunday. Gets in his car, and he drives to church, and he gets to church, and he's walking across the parking lot, and someone recognizes that Roger forgot one thing, his pants. And there is Roger Willits in his whitey tidies walking across the church parking lot, coming to worship, and a deacon notices Roger and runs out to greet Roger, Gives him a big hug and takes off his coat and says, Roger, we're going to go back to your house because I think you forgot something. And they go back to Roger's house and they get Roger some pants. What do you think would have happened if Roger had made it all the way into the church service? Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 11 is that the way you come to worship and the way you worship affects others. The key to worship, in fact, is your preparation for worship. Roger, of course, did not know that he'd forgotten his pants. He was totally oblivious to it. In fact, when I told Lauren the story this week, Lauren, Lauren goes, oh, poor Roger. He didn't know it. Poor Roger. But what if there were people in this room who did know it? And they were intentionally living or behaving in a way that was distracting others and that was bringing attention to themselves and directing attention away from the focus of the one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. For Roger, it was very intentional. But for somebody who is intentionally flaunting their liberty in Christ in a way that's distracting, Paul has a point for them in 1 Corinthians 11. You ought to intentionally prepare for worship. The point of 1 Corinthians 11 is that you should intentionally prepare for worship. 
And there's three points he makes in this passage. Number one, there's a commendation for your worship. There is a consideration of your worship. And there is preparation for your worship. And so let's dive into the text and we will apply it all together. First, a commendation for your worship. Notice in verse, chapter, uh, verse 2, now I commend you. Paul starts off with, you know, kind of a feedback sandwich. You know how this works. It's like, hey, you've been doing great at your job and you're just waiting for the but, right? You've had the feedback sandwich. Hey, you're amazing, but we have a few concerns. This is Paul. This is Paul saying, hey, I commend you. And what does he commend them for? Children, the word commend just means to give special thanks or praise to something. Paul commends them because they were remembering the paradoses in Greek, the traditions. The traditions were an, the collection of oral teachings that centered on the good news of Jesus that were passed down from Jesus to the apostles to disseminate to the churches. And Paul says, you're remembering the traditions. Well done. He uses the verb to keep with tradition 19 times in his letters and he uses the noun five times like he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So then brothers stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by your spoken word by our spoken word or by our letter. And we too stand on the shoulders of giants who have gone before us and received teaching and passed that teaching down to us. Jesus, to the apostles, to the patristics, to the reformers, and to the teachers who educated the teachers you probably learned from in your life. All centered on God's word and fighting to rightly interpret his word. And we today also pass down our traditions whenever we memorize scripture, whenever we learn the catechism, whenever we teach our children how to see the gospel not just as a doctrine to be believed, but in our faith and repentance, we begin to see that the work of Jesus becomes a worldview through which we view everything about our life. And we stand on the shoulders of giants. And just as Paul commended the church in Corinth, I just want to say to you, I am like crazy proud of you. When I travel and meet with other pastors, I brag about you guys all the time. I, you know, they have, they, have, they have beautiful churches, they've got great Sunday school rooms, and I say, we made it in the hallway to do Sunday school. We set up every week, this morning at seven o'clock. John Nowakowski and Barry Baker drove trucks so that they could set us up. And Greg Roberts and Brad Rutman and Ryan Baker and the whole slew of men drive trucks. Ladies, you can drive trucks too, by the way. Right. They drive early in the morning to get us ready for worship. It's beautiful. And when we worship, I mean, we worship, like, like do you smell the lacquer of the floor still? Like, we worship in a gym. But we have made this place beautiful and we have taught our children that it is not the building that is the most important thing. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit in worship that matters. And we are about to build a building of our own. Don't you dare let that distract you from what is most important. It will complement, but it will never, never replace the fact that we have everything we need as a church right now. 
And we're building the building simply because we are trying to allow there to be more room for people and we are trying to help you practice the core value of our church, which is to rest and worship. And that is hard to do when we set up every week. And so a building is necessary. I'm so proud of you. You know, years ago, almost, um, you know, nine years ago or so, we, we uh, when this church had their first group of elders and deacons, we, um, we had a big party, and it was called a particularization party. And we signed this tree, the original members of the church, uh, put with ink their thumbprints as branches on this tree, and they signed their name on this tree. And you know what's re remarkable to me now? And it's only been, what is it? It's only, you know, almost, almost 10 years since we did this. What's remarkable to me about this picture that hangs at the Trinity House is that if you look at it closely, how many names can you read? They have all faded. And maybe it's because we used really bad pens. <laughs> Or maybe it's because it's just a little small way that the Lord reminds us that one of these days nobody in this church is going to remember us. And it's not about us. One of these days people won't know your names but they will see your thumbprint on this church. And we will stand on the shoulder, just as we stand on the shoulder of giants, someday, one day, people are going to stand on our shoulders and we're going to pass down the traditions to them. Because the traditions aren't traditions as you think about them in English. They are the collection of what is true and beautiful and good. It is the beauty of the gospel. It is teaching God's word where you see Jesus in every passage. It is helping people say that because grace changes everything, you ought to live holy lives because the power to really live as God calls you to live and obeying his word is found because of grace. It is the root that allows holiness to blossom. And we want to be crazy about the beauty of Jesus. And we want to show that grace changes everything again and again and again and again. And so I just want to say thank you for the privilege of, of leading you as one of the elders of this church. And I am grateful for the way that you help me and my family worship. First, verse 2, Paul commends them for their worship. And secondly, he says to consider your worship. A consideration of worship. How shall we do that? Okay, this is where the fun is going to begin. Paul says, verse 3, but... Whenever there's a contrast in Scripture, you always want to know what exactly is he contrasting. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And so he starts with the eternal principle. And the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And now he shares the cultural custom. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Okay, what is going on here? First, the principle. Seven times in three verses, Paul uses the word kafale. It's the word for head. And head can mean one of three different things in the New Testament. It can mean your physical noggin, your head, your physical head on top of your shoulders. It can also mean authority, like head of state, the head of state. It can mean an authority. It can also mean origin, like headwaters. And in this passage, 
Unlike what we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 3 that Grant and Alice read earlier, that is talking about authority. Head kafale in Ephesians 5 means authority. But it is much murkier in this passage, much harder. And you'll find commentators all over the map, theologically conservative commentators, who are divided over whether it means origin or whether it means authority. And I actually think it means origin. <laughs> and I'll explain why and why it's even important. When he says that the head of every man is Christ, he's saying that man gets his glory, gets his honor, gets his value from being Christ's. Just like in the garden. And so women get their origin. They came from the rib of Adam, didn't they? They originated from him. In that culture, women got their social value based upon whom? Their husband. That was just the cultural norm of the day. And so when it says that the man is the head of the wife, the, the wife literally has her source, has her economic source, has her value source from being related to her husband. And so, the, Paul's point is that in worship, there is order. Just like in society, there's order. But in that day and time, there were women who were coming to prophesy and pray. There were men who were, were praying in ways that were highly distracted. Men, men would be praying and they would cover their heads. And who else covered their heads in Corinth at the time? Only those who prayed at Aphrodite's temple. Those men who would hide as they went to worship at the temple. They would cover their head. And Paul is saying, men, leave your head uncovered. Don't act like pagans when you worship. It's confusing. And women, women would often wear veils like a hijab might be. If you've seen a modern uh, Muslim woman wearing a hijab, they cover their faces. We don't exactly know what the head covering was back then. But they would cover their, they would, especially married women would have their heads covered and it was a sign that they belonged to their husband. It was kind of like if you, if you had a wedding ring and somehow you had uh, the last name of your husband. If you took your husband's last name, which we do today in some ways analogous to what the head covering was back then. It's a sign that, that you belong to him. If we were to have our last names like, you know, like athletes do on the back of football jerseys, emblazoned on our backs, like this is the, the Johnson family, this is the Alvin family, it would be something similar. But what if some of the wives begin to rip those names off and say, nope, I'm taking my maiden name back? It would become confusing. And in worship, women were uncovering their head when they prophesied and they prayed. Because Paul had taught them back in Galatians chapter 3, which was a book that they undoubtedly had access to because Paul spent so much time with them, but he wrote seven years earlier. And he had said in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for we're one in Christ. What was his point? All of us are heirs according to the promise. It was not that there is now Jews who are in and Gentiles who are out. It was not that there were uh, uh, freedmen who were better than the slaves who were in bondage. It wasn't that there were men who could, uh, could approach the temple and there were women who had to stay in the court of women in the temple. No, when Jesus died and the veil was torn from top to bottom, Paul is simply saying, before the Lord, we're all of equal value. 
Do we have distinct roles? Do we see our, the image of Christ manifested in different ways, men and women? Yes, of course. Other places in Scripture clearly teach that. But this passage, this passage is teaching us that we ought to be intentional about the way we prepare for worship. And the lack of head coverings for these women signified something that was so shocking in the day that it would only distract others in the room because who else uncovered their heads in Corinth? The temple prostitutes. Veiled as they go to work and they would unveil themselves when they would start their business. And so Paul says to them, it ought not to be. Why? Because there's order in worship. There's order. Some people said, well, Paul, you said there's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. So we're just like, we're just like, we're just expressing our Christian liberty. And Paul says, great, express your Christian liberty, but don't do it at the expense of somebody else. There's consideration of your worship. And then verses 6 to 16 teach us that there is preparation for your worship. Notice what the text says. He says uh, in verse uh, 6, For a wife, if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut off her hair. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover... Why is it disgraceful? Well, it's because that's what those who um, uh, practice spiritual fornication did. That's what uh, those, if you were married and you took off your your veil, it was as though you were saying, I am, it's like wearing a t-shirt that said single and ready to mingle to church. It would be really odd. And it would be disrespectful to the husband. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God. A woman is the glory of man. It's not that man is somehow paternalistic over women. That's not what Paul is teaching at all. He's saying that the, women, the woman's economic, social value was tied to her husband. Story of Ruth and Boaz, for example. And what Paul is actually saying here is that, in fact, because women have this new freedom in the Lord, because they have equal access to God, unlike the Old Testament civil law where they had to stay within the court of women. There is still order. But Paul is actually saying despite the pagan culture around them, that Christian husbands are now in fact to treat their wives with even greater respect than the surrounding patriarchal and paternalistic culture. And it should be the same for the church. The role of elder and the role of deacon is reserved for men in Christ's church. There are distinctions of roles, but this text, this text has been so weaponized or trivialized. Because how many of you have ever heard a sermon preached on 1 Corinthians 11? It's weaponized because there are still people today who say to women, you must wear a head covering. Any of you grown up in churches like that? Some of you I know in this room have. Or when you come to church, you must cover your head. And for a long time, it was quite popular for women to wear hats in worship. And it was in some ways a reflection, yes, of modern trends, but also of some churches that taught that women should have their head covering. 
people will weaponize this and say, if you don't keep your head covered, then you are outside of God. That is not what this text is teaching. The focus of the text is on the intentionality of how you prepare for worship. On the other hand, some people will just trivialize it and they will say, bah, this, how do you make sense of this? This is, this is like, women have to keep their heads covered? I mean, this is just another reason why I reject Christianity. It just seems so paternalistic and demeaning to women. This head covering was a social custom of the day that is no longer a trend today. You, you can make it a trend if you want, but it's no longer a trend that we practice today. We have different ways for saying that we are espoused or that we are married to our husbands, don't we, ladies? We take upon them the last names. We wear wedding rings. And the analogy of head coverings today, it might be a wedding ring. It might be taking our last names. But more practically, it might, it might just be to, to dress modestly. Because if Roger Willits came to worship in his whitey tidies, or you came to worship dressed in the same way that, that you, you might, might dress when it's just you and your, your spouse, it would be incredibly distracting. And so we are to do everything we can to remember that worship is not about you. <laughs> it is about coming to worship the one true God with Him as the focus. So Paul says that there are three ways for us to prepare. First, you have to consider the divine order of things. Just as Christ, who is fully God, has his origin in the triune Godhead, eternally God, never created, just as Jesus is fully God and there is order in the Holy Trinity, so also in a marriage there is order. There is a wife and there is a husband of equal value. Do they play different roles? Of course they play different roles functionally. Yes, of course. Other passages of Scripture teach that. And in society, there are different roles that we play in order to properly function. There's order in worship. Secondly, in creation, verses 7 to 9, Paul draws his eye back to creation. He says, in creation, in creation itself, in nature, God has created order in the way that he has made man and that he has made women. And they are interdependent. And we should honor that creative norm. Both equal. Women here are assumed, by the way, to particip be participating in the service. And Paul is not attacking that. He's not attacking that they're participating. He is attacking how they are participating. Both equal in dignity and value, but distinct in their gender and in their roles. And in 3, in verse 10, there's this really strange phrase that you see at the very end of that verse. You see that? Because of the angels. What in the world is that? In the early church, um, there are all kinds of fun quotes from Clement and from Augustine and from others about what worshiping in the presence of angels mean, but every single one of them mean this, that when you come to worship, the faces you see in this room are not the only ones here. And when you come walk to worship, you ought to know that the angels in heaven are singing with you as you sing, and they are watching you, and they are worshiping with you. They are learning from you. First Peter says that the angels craned their neck to see the gospel at work. And they're here. 
And so Paul, Paul says, even for the, in a society that had a much, much more accurate, perhaps, understanding of the demonic and angelic realm, they were far more real and part of their daily life than they are today. Paul says, women, you should cover your head because of the angels. Because it's shameful for you to act so unbecoming, even before those who are in the Lord's presence worshiping with you. Now, there is order, there is recreation here, and there is a far larger company of people worshiping. And therefore, you ought to worship with decorum and worship in spirit and in truth. That's the point of the text. Now, here's the thing I want to do for the last um, couple of minutes. I, um, this is like a class, and there's handouts. And so, I'm going to hand out to you how to prepare for worship. Stick it on your fridge. Stick it on your, um, in your car. How do we prepare for worship? Just, it'll get passed down before we get to the supper by that time. And I just want to ask you, would you intentionally begin to prepare for worship? And would you start on Saturday night? How are you to come to worship on a Sunday morning if you've had an exhausted late Saturday night? It's very hard, isn't it? And so worship on Sunday begins on Saturday evening. Would you begin to be intentional? And we're going to run out, I think, so I'm going to pass some more back here. Would you begin to be intentional about your worship? Mike, can I give these to you? You can just pass them from the back up. Thank you, brother. In the second part of this passage that really um, uh, challenged me this week is, is the cultural question of, okay, you say that head coverings are not uh, transcultural, right? Because some Christians do not believe that. They believe that they are. How do you know, Pastor Blake, when a custom is to be transcultural and when a custom is limited to a time and place in ancient life? It's a great question. For example, okay, so somebody says that sex outside of marriage is a transcultural principle that Christians ought to live by. How come? Why wouldn't it just be cultural, just like the head coverings are. You pick and choose your passages, Christian, all the time. So let me try to go after that question just for a couple of minutes. There are at least four rules of biblical interpretation that are very important always to remember. We magnify the work of Jesus, and we show that grace changes everything as we read the scriptures, because commands and principles are permanent if they are repeated by other passages of Scripture, and they are never repealed. That's the first thing. Commands and principles are permanent if they are repeated by other parts of Scripture and never revoked. On a positive illustration, men and women are made in the image of God. So all men and women, even non-believers, are to be treated with dignity and respect. Or trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That is repeated all throughout Scripture. And it's transcultural. Or put on humility. That isn't just cultural. That is a principle of how we ought to be as God's people. Pray with hearts of purity. 1 Timothy 2.8 There are passages of Scripture that are 
cultural. For example, a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, a Nazarite was to grow his hair long in order to show his dedication to the Lord in Judges chapter 13 or 1 Samuel chapter 1. But in the New Testament, what is it? Long hair for a man is, according to this verse, considered dishonorable. Which is it? The New Testament has revoked the Nazarite practices. And the Bible is, is its own authority under the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are passages that are revoked. We talked about this a little bit in the class this morning on Christian ethics. Commands and principles are permanent if they are repeated by other parts of Scripture and never revoked. This is the only place you hear about head coverings. Never seems to be an issue elsewhere in Scripture. The issue is not the head coverings. The issue is the disorder conduct in the context of 1 Corinthians as he talks to them about worship in this chapter. Another biblical interpretive practice is commands and principles that pertain to a specific individual or are not related to moral or theological matters are not permanent or transcultural. So Paul's instruction to Timothy in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 to bring his cloaks and scrolls that's obviously limited to Paul's situation. Christian fathers are not commended to sacrifice their sons as Abraham was told to do in Genesis chapter 22. Nor are all handymen supposed to build arks. Three. Some commands or situations are similar to ours, but the customs differ. And therefore, through the customs, and though they may differ, we see principles that remain. For example, the holy kiss. Yeah, I don't see many of us lining up for that, especially since what we've been through as a culture the last several years with illness. But we still show affection to people by shaking hands and hugging necks and welcoming people with open arms. Or Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, parents are to teach their children, but, but must we write verses on the doorposts of our house and on our gates? No, you talk about them as you're in the carpool drive-thru, and you talk about them as you're running to soccer practice. The, the customs change, but the principles remain. Are, are you hearing me? This is very important. There are principles that remain that are transcultural, even though customs differ. Now, the issue of sexuality is in Scripture consistent from beginning to end, just as one example. As sex is to be practiced between a man and a woman and only in the confines of marriage. Never changes. Repeated throughout, just as one example. Four, some commands or situations that pertain to cultural settings with no similarities in our day Nevertheless, still have principles that are transferable. When the sinful woman comes to Jesus, remember, she breaks the alabaster jar and she, she anoints his head. Like, we don't have Jesus here. He's ascended at the right hand of the Father. We can't anoint his head anymore. We can't do that. But we can in principle as we lean into worship and as we sing, as we love those who are hard to love, as we encourage others with the gospel, we can anoint the beauty of Christ in the lives of others. So Paul's point is that, Corinthians, I know you've heard me say that everything is permissible, but I want you to know that in worship there is to be decorum and that there is to be order. And it comes not just because of the rules, it comes all the way back from creation itself when God made man and woman in the garden. 
And remember that there are angels who are worshiping with you. Now Roger Willits. Poor old Roger did not mean to be a distraction. And children who cry in the service and infants who wiggle in our arms, they don't mean to be a distraction. We are so grateful they're here. We love them. We love it. Paul is speaking to those who know they're being a distraction. And he's saying, oh, would you focus the attention upon Jesus? Don't use your Christian liberty at the expense of a brother and sister. And as you prepare your heart for worship, and as you come to the table, would you do so intentionally, knowing that your Savior, with love for you, intentionally took on flesh and came to earth. He intentionally entered the order of creation so that you and I might be able to freely worship him. That Jesus was the one who lived according to a structure, not to limit him, but to exalt the glory of Christ. And our structures are going to change. In a thousand years, we may all be worshiping in a totally different way. If Martin Luther walked into our churches today, he might be shocked at what he sees. But nevertheless, we should be intentional in our worship because the Lord has been intentional for us. So go to him. Come to him at the Lord's table. Walk into worship every week. Pray. Long to be taught. Laugh together with your brothers and sisters. Learn a new name. Extend the hands and feet of Christ to them. And intentionally prepare yourself for worship. Be commended. But be considerate. And come prepared. Because Christ your Savior, who has accomplished everything for you that enables you to be able to worship, is here with you and he intends to change even on the spot. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.